this first episode of the uh, the Coach Cast, as I like to call it. So you're the you're the first guest, and uh, excited to to get into it with you today. Um, so we first met at the uh, NSCA regional conference where you were presenting on movement preparation, and uh, I thought you did a great presentation there. Um, so I just wanted to my kind of selfish way of reaching out to you and, and learning from you as well. Um, so yeah, how, how about you introduce yourself for the people that maybe haven't heard of you or don't know quite kind of what you do, and then uh, then we'll go from that. Yeah, so uh, my name is Yves Casagrande. I'm the strength conditioning coach for Orlando Pride currently. So going to my second season with them, which unfortunately we had to um, suspend for indeterminate times. Uh, just has been crazy times over here for everybody. Uh, but I've, I've started with them last April, which was a little bit a little bit after their preseason. And I arrived in the middle of the season, which was kind of crazy, uh, chaotic, but um, really good learning experience for me. Uh, before that, I was in Michigan as a director of sports performance for a youth athletic training facility for about two years, a year and, yeah, almost two years. So, um, and I also... I'm a, a per diem uh, network sports scientist with U.S. youth national team. So um, whenever I'm, we're in off season, I, I go do some camps with the youth national team, which is a great experience for me to kind of get back to the youth um, a little bit, which I've always loved um, and, and worked with for about four years before I came um, to join Orlando Pride. So it's been quite a journey since then. Yeah, it sounds it. How about we, we actually start off with the like the youth training that you do and, and how that's maybe influenced some of your programming with what you do now with the Orlando Pride? Yeah, it's, it was really interesting for me because I when I started um, in my master's, uh, I did a bunch of internships and mentorships throughout the summers of my master's. And, and they're all with elite uh, athletes mostly because um, I worked for Exos as an intern, LA Galaxy and uh, both the academies and the first team. Um, but my exposure as an intern was a lot of elite, um, which when I, when I finished my master's and I was at Redline um, and it was all youth, it was a, a really eye-opening experience because I was trying to get all the methodology that I learned from Exos to the youth because we, we, we literally started from the ground uh, at Michigan, like, Redline is a franchise, it's huge all over the U.S., but we were opening that first franchise in Michigan, so construction, when I got there, we were like literally in the middle of construction, and I, it was a really cool experience because I could start something and start my own methodology together with Redline and their mission, but um, it was my way to kind of learn the leadership and get coaches around me that I trusted and, and develop an internship program there, which was amazing, but um, it was a huge learning process for me and a trial and error like all the time because with Exos methodology that I had a lot from, that I learned a lot from, it's all about this, um, perfecting the basics really well. And the way they do that, um, it's a really cool way with elite athletes, but I think it's really hard for you to mimic that into the youth because sometimes it's, it's if, you don't, if you're not creative, it's going to be really boring for the kids because it's just like wall drills and like breaking down movement. And if you're telling kids that are like seven, eight, nine, ten-year-olds that have so much energy, you have to find a different way to do it. 
Um, so that was a really eye-opening experience because I had to change all my methodology and all my, not methodology, I'll say, but like all this stuff that I thought it was going to be uh, ingrained in my philosophy. And I changed it because the kids wouldn't, I wouldn't get the buy-in from the kids if, if it was just like that. So I created the, a little process where, um, where they would come and we would do a dynamic warm-up. And that dynamic warm-up was really important to really get the kids to have a little consistency every day in some part of our training. And then we go through five minutes, like movement skills, like the boring part of the, the stuff where we actually take the time to slow kids down, which we need to find a way to to meet them halfway because you don't want to slow them down too much because they want to, you know, they, they want to express themselves, the, the movement and creativity. But I think it's really important to still have a big part on that uh, movement part just because our kids today is like nowadays, they're just not playing outside as much and they're just not, you know, um, like when I was a kid, I would be outside all the time playing soccer and jumping on trees. And that's already like movement expression and uh, dealing with movement uh, problems and creating solutions your own way, <clears throat> which I was shocked when I saw kids that had like some of them were just they could not ne never interact with each other. Um, so I think that as a youth coach, you have a really big responsibility of, of at least five minutes giving the consistency of teaching them how to land, teaching them how to express power through the outside light. Because most of those kids, they're actually multi-sport or they are specialized in one sport in a pretty young age. So you see if you're not doing your job there, because the clubs are definitely, some of them are not doing that, the youth uh, clubs. Like it's really hard to find clubs that ha actually have the staff that can do that. Um, so... It, and they're not playing outside, so it's kind of like our job to instill that that little movement um, literacy uh, that sometimes they're not getting PE because the PE in schools are you know decreasing in a high rate too. So um, so we did that, and then after that boring part is the the creativity, right? So how can you link the focus of that session to something that's applicable and you're actually explaining to them why you're doing it. So if I'm doing a lateral movement kind of day, I'm going to do a competition between one and two in a mirror drill uh, and add a bunch of different multi-directional drills within because now you're adding fun, you're adding competition and you're, they're completely bought in. And now they know why the value of that five boring minutes, um, why is it, it applicable to their sport into what they're doing so um so we did a lot of that and we did a lot of like uh letting them figure things out which w some kids when you do that and you give them freedom they're just like freeze and they're like i don't know how to create solutions i don't know how to be creative because they're just so busy with um social media they're busy with video games they they're just not used to that um and then you see the kids, they are actually playing outside and, you know, having all those those experiences. And when you give them a, a drill and it's like, okay, now it's your time to be creative. Create anything that you want with this three equipment uh, pieces that I, I'll give you, like a cone, a ladder, a box. And then they're like, oh, my gosh, they are so excited because now they, they, they want to express the creativity because that's what they do and they're used to it. So... 
it's really easy to find those two different kind of kind of youth athletes and um and then going forward when i when i uh join with the professional team there's a big thing that i realized was cuz you think that elite level elite level athletes know everything in terms of movement competency and um figuring out ways but most of them don't and you kind of have to go back to training the youth is like get back to the basics be creative with it because they need still need to buy into it um for me it's like the best way to when you if you want to be dealing with elite professional athletes i think you have to get that youth experience in because that helps you so much not only uh finding creative ways to get the buy in from players because the elite elite players they love competition right so if you add the fun and competition together then they're completely about it um and and that's kind of what i learned i think even um if you can find ways to really make it creative for them and applicable in their real world situation and in the sport i think that's a win win and um if i didn't work with youth before i'll probably not being able to be as creative as i am today to to use my warm up time which is 10 minutes 15 minutes or good days 20 minutes to really get everything i need um with them and and i think the warm up is such a big important time to to hammer all those things in and a lot of coaches like complain that they don't have time but you can do so much during a warm up instead of just going through the motions so uh definitely a learning experience uh from that for sure yeah and i mean i always used to think or say to myself when i was when i was kind of in the infancy of my coaching career that i wasn't in the entertainment business and yes. i'd heard like one or two other coaches that i respected had said that as well but then because i started off uh, i interned at like the collegiate environment over in the uk and yes. then went into working a little bit of youth and to be honest you almost bypass bypass the the entertainment aspect being in that collegiate environment and i look back now and it's becoming even though i'm back in the collegiate environment you need to understand how to have the kind of i don't like necessarily love the word fun but you need to have yeah. the fun and the enjoyment factor in the session to just to get the buy in and i think right. that's the same from being whether you're working with your under 12s in the academy or whatever it is through to your collegiate or pro athletes that you're dealing with now and do you think that's one of the biggest things that you've potentially learned over the years that by having um or having like a fun or entertainment element within your and that comes obviously in different in different forms like you're talking about the pros love the competition compared to the the youth athletes love maybe creating something themselves Do you think there's a huge carryover from that youth athlete to the pros and you could almost run the same session to an extent? Yeah, like 100%. Like my warm-up sessions, like at the end of my warm-up sessions, I always like to get a cognitive cognitive drill and a fun drill and 90% is from all the the drills that I coach with my youth team. And I think you 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 got a good point in the collegiate level especially because when I played in college it was freaking hell like i was it was I, because there's so much pressure and it's just like back, like it's getting better now but it's just like running and running and running i felt like i was a track athlete uh sometimes because you know and there's no there's no like really fun sometimes it's just um it's crazy because that can really you know ruin your your college experience so 
I think the not only that fun, but the connection from the coach and the athlete. I think that's a lot of times is kind of it's hard to you know find coaches that can do that. Um, and I think it's the hardest part of coaching. It's really creating that relationship with the athlete so that buy-in can come from it uh, and interaction and all that stuff. And I think the NCAA it's hard because there's so many rules like within the the system that you're. When I worked with the, the college system for two years um, before I went to Redline, it was um, it was really weird transition when I went to to professional because you're like, am I allowed to talk to them if I'm not in the gym? Like it's so weird what the end of the volley rules like make you you feel like you're you can't do anything. Um, so I don't know. It's just I I understand the rules, but I think it's just. It, it kind of uh, puts coaches in kind of like, uh, I don't know, how can I develop that relationship um, and trust, but then at the same time, you know, um, abide from I, I know exactly <laughs> what you mean. When I, when I first moved over here from the, from the UK and I was taking sessions and obviously you know about the NCAA regulations and things like that, but you don't know exactly the ins and outs. And it's as someone yeah. from the outside coming in, you're trying to really understand, okay, so what can I do here with the athletes? How long have I actually got? Does that fit into, if you're in an off-season eight-hour block period, like you've got to obviously decide, okay, I've maybe got four hours of physical prep here, four hours for, uh, for sport practice. Like what's going on? You've, you've really got to think about how you're going to kind of apply your training and where you're going to get the most bang for your buck. Um, yeah. So that kind of leads me on a little bit. If you're, I know I, this year I've had a bit of a focus on within my own sessions, trying to have my guys and girls, I want them to leave my session. So usually if I'm taking a 10, 15 minute warm up, like you were talking about, my goal was I want them to leave my session smiling. Okay, so I wanted them to come away happy from the session. They'd had a good time. So we might go through our movement prep and then we might play, like you said, with some sort of game. And they come yeah. away from the session with me thinking, oh, we've had a good time and we want to go back to him because I'm sure you've had it yourself that when coaches send athletes to you, they're coming over being like, oh, it's, it's fitness. It's like, it's always going to be a hard session. Um, right. So I've, I've tried from my point of view to like, to change that, that persona on the athletes and what they're thinking. Um, so my question to you is around that. If you're taking five, seven, maybe a few more warmups per week with, with your athletes, how are you providing that much variability within, within all your sessions? You've obviously got different goals for each session in the warmup. Um, but how are you coming up with these ideas uh, what are your secrets? <laughs> yeah, it's always, it's actually something that terrifies me every day before going to training. It's like not, uh, it's making sure my warm-ups are not going to be boring for them, which is when you're in preseason, when you have two sessions a day, three sessions a day, you're like, oh my gosh, we still have seven months of, of training. How can I really get that going? Uh, but what helped me a lot uh, the last couple of months, and I think that's um, really I learned a lot from one of our assistant coaches currently that he was a former sports scientist. Um, it's understanding the game. Um, I mean, I played, I played at the professional level, I played as a semi-pro, but once you're in that position, sometimes you forget to think about the the game demands and stuff like that, and how can you include that in your warm-ups? Um, so I think. The biggest thing for me is to, I've been trying to really be on all the technical staff meetings so I can understand the little things that 
that the, the staff wants from them uh, in terms of any, anything like 1v1 situations, how they need to be quicker, how is our style of, uh, how is our style of game going to be? Because um, that can be really helpful to add variability to my warm-up. So, um, and increase the buy-in from the players. So if you include the ball, if you include anything uh, that it's going to be tied to the game and tied to what they do in the, in the game, then that's a win-win. So uh, what I started doing is like I've, I've had that, you always have to have that boring time where you put them on a line or you, you create, sometimes I do like circles, they go all in the middle, um, and then that pulse razor, right? So the, the pulse razor, you can really add variability. Of course, you can add variability in terms of the mobility that you put in, but it's just that five minutes that, unfortunately, sometimes you just have to go through the motions, which is fine. But after that, then I I sit down with the coaches and during the week, and I say, okay, what is the focus of that, the warm, uh, the, the technical sessions? Is that change direction? Is that lateral movement? Is that pressing? Uh, it's a 10v10, 11v11, anything like that will give me information of stuff that I want to uh, add to my warm-up on that specific day to really prepare them to what they're going to do, be doing in training. Uh, so a lot of the stuff that I've been trying to do is um, I do a drill where they still do the movement stuff that I want them to do. So, like, I put a lateral, they have to accelerate, uh lateral shuffle go around which are all the the movements that they need to do in the field but it's isolated with no ball because i want them to really ingrain that quick transition from acceleration to acceleration change direction and then after that they can receive a ball after a 10 10 meters sprint to a touch to a mini goal that's that little portion is so important for them because as soon as you get that ball in the you know and the coaches are around too and the, the warm-up the quality and the intent uh goes from here to here so uh, i think it's really important to work with technical staff to make sure we make that connection uh so not only players can buy into what you do but the coaches can buy into what you do too and, and they can really um use that time even if you're any like because i know you work with 10 is like if you have tennis balls or stuff like that, the coaches are really hammering down in terms of technicality of the, the sport. Um, it's going to be huge for, for coaches. And they maybe give you more time to work on a warm-up, five more minutes uh, compared to, you know, 10. Um, so it's, it's just that technical. And you don't have to be specific, like really specific with soccer because that then the technical part is with the coaches. But... The movements, it's and it's all related to what we do. So, like, if if our midfielders are not being able to switch the the game from left to right because they physically can do, then that's on us. So, how can we help them to get the extra um, extra quality in the gym and and all that to make that happen? And that can be focused on strength and power. Not only that, maybe uh, join. Um, joint limitations that can really make them hard to move and, and smooth move in, in the, on the field. So I've been taking a lot of pride on, on really get assessments down in preseason. Um, not only just um, like 
strength and power assessments, but also biomechanical assessments where I use a lot of video analysis um, to make sure what's going on uh, with them. And I think it's a it's a huge puzzle that we we're in front we have in front of us, and it's it's up to us to kind of get the pieces of the puzzle together. And sometimes you have to think big picture. Um, have a lot of conversations with Dan Pfaff all the time because he's all so big on the, the visual, the video analysis. And when I went to Altus this year and, and did their coaching program, it was just eye-opening because it's really cool to see how much that can really help you to answer questions. And um, sometimes we get too busy isolating, like, oh, the problem was with the hips, and then we forget something downstream or up the stream that can actually be causing that and you can find that you don't you don't need to really create a full battery of tests to do that you can I started doing is I have an intern I started filming our gym sessions and to like a frontal side view of the, the, the players and then just playing and playing all over afterwards and kind of just figuring things out um, so it's been really helpful for me to kind of and, and fun uh, process to get those pieces of the puzzle and kind of everything coming together and, and you kind of like, okay, that makes sense. Um, so it's do really you find, Do you find that helps with athlete buying as well? Do they like being recorded and things like that, being able to watch themselves back? Yeah, they love it. And, and it's, been, it's been really cool to see that because uh, at that level, like they, they want that feedback, you know, because they, a lot of those athletes, they just do everything they can to be the best version of themselves so we have a lot of players that spend so much time in prehab and like taking care of their bodies and they appreciate so much the to give them the tools to to get to that um so like for example now in our quarantine i gave all my hip tightness athletes which they know who they are and um based on assessments like i show them and, and show the videos and just kind of like walk them through stuff uh, so I send them a 14-day mobility challenge from Calisteret. Uh, every day I would send them a text with, okay, this is day one, this is day two. So that was amazing because they started to realize that in order for you to really move well, there's a lot of pieces of the puzzle. It's not just like hammering hip mobility for 14 days. It's like, it's your ankle, it's your adductors might be tight, it's your quads might be tight. So um, it's a really cool process for them to understand that. And it's really... It builds that interaction too during those times where, um, you know, they they have enough time to work on those those things and and they appreciate that. And even with sprints, like when they do sprints in their programs now during quarantine, like I tell them, just send me a video of your sprints and then and then I just kind of give them feedback, things that they they want to know and and it's really cool because then you're building the interaction, we build that buy-in, and they yeah. they want to know. Um, and they're like, how can I get rid of that? And then I have to explain like, oh, sometimes because like, you're at that professional level, we need to be really careful of changing somebody's, uh, movement mechanics. And it's, uh, you know, I know you created that compensation for how, how many years. So the way I see is like, how can I prepare them with the right tools, mobility, strength, all that stuff to be prepared for the demands of the game and the chaos with that compensation? You know, I'm not trying to change. It's sometimes it's hard to change. You can help them, but changing gates and all that stuff is a really dangerous spot to be in. And it's like, can you build 
the resiliency around that. So when they're actually going to the high speed of the sports and the, the high chaos of the sport, they can actually deal with it with that compensation because they're prepared, they're strong, they have um, the resiliency to deal with it. So that's kind of, it's my education part to them and trying them to, because they're a perfectionist. So they want to like, how can I get the sprint like as perfect as you can? And like, you know, you're not going to think about that when you're sprinting in the soccer field, but how can we help you to create forces more effectively and be powerful and all that, and that extra second that you have in that during that transition from deceleration to acceleration to be quicker than your opponent. That's, that's what I've tried to get, you know, it's not getting you to be a perfect sprinter because you're, you're not going to be a soccer you're, player. You're, you're a soccer player at the end of the day. And that's something I've, always right. thought it's like athletes at the end of the day are just the best compensators at movement right. they've, they've adapted it. they've compensated in the best way possible that allows them to perform their sport now if i look at my tennis players like they've got certain things that are going to help them they've got more external rotation less internal rotation or whatever it's going to be and that's yeah. just kind of the way it is they're going to have those asymmetries from limb to limb and um mm -hmm. and that's something that if we try and change that then we're potentially going to like limit their performance in other ways they're going to have a, like a stronger or bigger stance leg on their serve because they land on, well, every time they serve, they land on one leg like a hundred times a day or whatever it's going to be. Exactly. And that's that thousands of reps per year. And like, we just cannot overcome that in the gym. Um, yeah. So I know you will jump back a little bit there. You talked about assessments. Mm -hmm. What type of assessments you mentioned, like biomechanical assessments and things like that. Um, how are you kind of like, what assessments are you doing? How are you prioritizing that within your, your team's training program? Are you individualizing? And then how is that leading into your like your KPIs and things like that? I know there's kind of a three, fourfold question there. Um, yeah. Yeah, I as as I told you, like it's it's a lot of the times it's like detecting those those movement compensations they're moving in. And the video helps a lot. Um, so if I can share my screen, I can send I can give you guys an example. Sure thing. Let me know if my screen is being shared. Yep, I got you. Okay, so this girl here, uh, Abby, so she, she works with me uh, at Redline, and she's a volleyball player, came with a huge, a huge, like, a, she had an ankle uh, problem in the past, but she had a really lower back chron chronic pain. Um, so when she came in, I just started doing those little things that I could film that could give me some, some idea of what was going on there. So, um, so if, if you see, and I'm going to slow this down so, just so, so people can see, like when you see her right arm, when she goes up and her upper body, she completely shifts and then she's back to it. So, like slowly back to, to, to it. So main thing I got from this is like, okay, maybe her lumbar pelvic control is horrible where, you know, she needs that, especially with volleyball. Like that's going to be something that might be causing that chronic lower back pain. If she's not strong there, she's going to compensate and, and, and lack of strength. She was not really, uh, never really done a lot of strength training before. So we started with the basics. So uh, let me see if I can find the other video um, and I'll show you kind of the thought process that I had and kind of what 
let's see if he is going to open here. So lumbar pelvic control is a big, big one that I started doing with her. Um, and then deceleration abilities, I think it's huge for us to be able to see a lot of the movement compensations during stability, uh, during a deceleration. So I, I just put her barefoot and I just told her like to, to squat. And then I, there's like really big <clears throat> collapse of the, the foot there in just a like resting position. So we started doing foot stability stuff, um, basic foot stability stuff to create that intrinsic foot uh, strength. Um, so we started from the bottom, went work all the way up. Uh, we did, did lumbar pelvic control. This one is from my, the far one of my favorite for lumbar pelvic control. This is from Sam Blanchard, who's a physio, uh, who was a physio from Arsenal. He's at Men's City now, but, um, yeah, so creating the association to get that lumbar pelvic control, see that pelvis is working really hard, um, working on that foot control with simple exercises and make sure they don't collapse. Um, simple exercises where you're just telling them to own positions and, and you're slowing them down. And I think as a female athlete, especially when you're going through the, um, the growth maturation phase, it's huge for us to really uh, slow them down and, you know, get that, um, those things to kind of make them own positions. Um, and then the acceleration. So the acceleration is, uh, let's see if I can find, there's a deceleration drill that I do. If you slow-mo that drill, um, let's see if this is the one. So what happens is I've started seeing like, especially with football players, and this is like a U14 team. So you can see the difference on the right side of the size of the players. Like you have players that are so much taller and look so much more mature than players that are in the same age, but it's kind of like, uh, late developers. Um, and then if you see this guy here, I don't know. Can you see my, yeah, I thing? can see. Yeah. Yeah. So Ty, he worked with us for a year and it's like strength, single leg strength, slowing him down, going to the deceleration positions and owning those positions. The others, the other guys, they're the other boys. They're like literally just this was the first training that they had, and they've never been able to. They're never uh, exposed to really strength training before. So this is a simple Kelly. drill that I do. Okay. Use your arms, good. And then I want you to see Ty when he decelerates here, and how strong of that stable position he gets. And then and look at the other ones. Look at this guy here right here look at his movement mechanics when he decelerates right trunk goes one way foot collapse then knee gonna collapse look at this guy close to tie to so i started noticing all those patterns from kids that look at this guy here look at the foot what happened <laughs> when he decelerates so now now you're thinking about a controlled environment right um and then when you when you go and, and um, think about soccer and all those different sports and the chaos that's added to it 
and you see kids doing that in a control environment and then they go play soccer in a really high speed chaos situation then they're not able to control their bodies and are able to, and you see that ACL injuries and all that stuff so not only for uh, I think it's a big thing for us to start teaching youth how to move better and then that movement literacy comes from that time when they are young and you're already instilling things with like it's just that motor pattern that you're instilling every single day um, when they go on the field it's like automatically they have the strength to do to deal with the demands not only that but they have the motor control to do those actions so and it's really you can really see and that's like Ty, it's like the way he decelerates is like his body knows what when it needs to decelerate it's it's in a stable position all good to go so it's not that this is gonna prevent all injuries but it's gonna put them in better positions and in better ways to kind of deal with the demands of the game and that's huge especially when they're going through their 14 15 year old like with females they're gonna mature way earlier so they're probably gonna do during when they're 11 12 years old um and that's the time to really start hammering strength and start hammering motor control because when uh, menarche comes and, and you have the menstrual periods and menstru like the menstruation then it's like you have to give them strength for their joints and and the lumbar pelvic control all those things that because of our the female anatomy that's gonna get them more predisposed for injuries as acl so how can we as coaches start young, like start them young doing strength in those kind of trainings like learning how to decelerate how to control their bodies and stuff so and that's where when i talk to you about in the beginning is like you need to know how to slow kids down and how to speed them up, right? Because you can't say that you just have to slow them down because they need to express movement. They need to play. They need to do that. But once it comes that that phase where the growth maturation comes, they get awkward. You see parents like, oh, my kid is not doing well in his physical tests and he's not really, he's just his running technique is horrible on the field and stuff like that. They don't understand that. And a lot of the time we have to educate parents and uh, tell them, you know, there's a lot of changes, physiological changes going on in your kid's body. So how can we slow them down now? Because now they need to slow down to be slowing down because uh, they need to get that motor control, which a lot of kids don't, um, especially when they're going through the growth spurt because they don't know how to control their bodies. Like the legs are probably growing faster than their trunk or stuff like that. So those those things are, are things that we as coaches need to need to affect and, and need to you know take control of and i think it's extremely important yeah i like i like that little saying it's almost you got to slow them down to, to speed them up you exactly choose, choose the right time and the right opportune moment to, to do that and i think the examples that you use there where obviously the athlete that you've been working with he had so much better motor control and his deceleration acceleration patterns just, just because he's done it, and it's that repetition, and mm -hmm. compared to the other athletes, and then that obviously makes my job easier if they come to work with me in the collegiate setting, and then if I pass them on to you to work in the pro setting, that's going to make everyone's job. Then you're obviously working with an advanced athlete in terms of his movement, compared to you could you could get someone very much kind of at the elementary 
scale at times where they haven't really been taught how to move, even in the pro game. So you've got such a variety of skills and different levels within within the athletes you've got. Um, yeah. So just just moving on a little bit, I know you talked about like training the female athlete there a little bit and the differences. Um, let's let's get into that a little bit if that's okay, because obviously, and I think some some coaches get get away from this a little bit. Like training the female athlete is not like training a male athlete. They're not just little men, and I think it's yeah. I think it's important for coaches to understand that. And I think the more female coaches we get into this profession, the better it's going to be from everyone because. Like we, we're constantly learning, males are constantly learning from females and vice versa. And I think the female profession is, is just growing and it's got so much to give. Um, yeah. So could you get into that a little bit on how you maybe train your female athletes compared to how you'd maybe train a male soccer player? Yeah, I think I think the biggest thing is, is and I say that, but I, I still build the connections as much with a, a male athlete, right? But I think female athletes, they crave that interaction they crave a little bit more that um that uh, understanding of the coach of what they're normally dealing with um and it's cool like when i because i i played and you know i have the same um problems that they go through in once a month so we can really kind of joke around about it but it's i think it's harder for a, a male coach to do that um but i don't think it's it should be a taboo, right? Because it's it's such a like uh, menstrual cycles are such an important uh, piece of the puzzle, and it's not the piece of the puzzle like everybody thinks is like oh my gosh, it's the only way. Like if you're training female athletes, you just need to monitor. And I think in the practical world, it's really hard to really use that that because um, there's a lot of research on the menstrual cycle and specific phases there's more injuries and, and all that. If you're like, for for example, I'm the only, uh, I have a, a nutritionist, a dietitian, and and I have an athletic trainer, but I do all the strength conditioning programs. I do the return to play protocols. I do the data analysis. I do the GPS report. So for me to really use the menstrual cycle data to really individualize stuff it's impossible because for me there's other priorities such as you know getting those assessments how can i create a culture in the team that those players are going to come 30 minutes before a training and do spend time hammering those things that they need to be hammering um but now i think it it is really important information to know your athletes and that menstrual cycle piece it's really important to know your athletes because one of them can deal with it fine, can be okay with it. Some of them have really problems with it in terms of terrible fatigue. Like they're they're not able to like some of some in my, in the past said that it screws up their balance. Like in the weight room when we do like single leg stuff, they're like, Ooh, when I'm on my period, like definitely can feel the difference. So um, knowing that, I can tell my coach and I can talk to my athlete in ways that I can not telling them, okay, you're having terrible menstrual period symptoms, then I'm going to give you a day off. It's not that. It's just how can I manage and affect that in a good way so you can perform, still perform in a good way, right? So maybe I do a bilateral hamstring instead of single leg if that player really struggles with balance, if she really thinks that balance is, is something affected by the menstrual cycle. 
if the fatigue is huge, the coach needs to know because um, they're going to know, like, they're, they're going to think, well, why, why is this player, like, slow today? It's just, like, not, you know, the, the reaction time is slower and it's, everything's kind of off. Then is that, the, is the that something you're that. tracking? Are you tracking that kind of where they are in their cycle potentially? Are they feeding that back to you? Or you, obviously you're tracking yeah. the things as well? Sometimes it just comes from conversations because we're, we build such a good uh, relationship um, between me and them and that they are like, you know, like I'm not feeling it. And they don't even even need to tell me. Well, it's like I, I'm feeling it. So I know exactly what they, what they mean. Um, so... But we also have a we use a, a redness questionnaire um, where we can they can put um, it shows us if they're in the, the end of the cycle or the beginning of the cycle, which gives us good information on that. And then we can just follow up with with them and say, you know, there's anything if there's anything that I can do for you to kind of, you know, and sometimes I direct them to our nutritionist and say, okay talk to Ricky, she's going to tell you specific what foods would be better for you during this. For injured players, there's foods that it's going to really help you with an inflammatory response and all that stuff. So how can we affect those little things that can really help them to perform? It's not like you're changing your entire training based on like individualized because I can't do that. I don't, it's, I can only do too much with like being myself there like um but it's how can i it's the pieces of the puzzle that i talked to you about like it's how can we can create that, that that puzzle where you can you know affect them in different ways um and provide support in each and every way and where they are now like they are comfortable coming to me and saying like okay what can i do because i'm like feeling like shit what can i do to change this exercise or you know, so it's just it's just another piece to really um, help them along the way. And again, the biggest thing with female athletes that I've noticed too is, and again, it's hard to say that it's only female athletes because a lot of football players have the same problems, like the male too. The lumbar pelvic control, probably the hip, the um, the anatomy of the hips will make single leg landing a little bit harder for female athletes and, and, and a little bit with more compensation. So... It's all about hammering the basics for me. It's just like ACL programs. For me, it's, ACL program is good movement. It's good motor control. It's slowing them down in the weight room uh, in specific ways. Not every time that you're going to slow them down. If you're doing power, you can't slow them down. But exercise, single leg exercise that can really bring that awareness. And I always tell them, like, okay, you need to hold the, fin the bottom position, the start and finish position for three seconds so they can start you know, getting them and recruiting different ways to kind of get the stability. So, um, and I think stuff that I've been realizing from my assessment, especially with players coming from college, is they're strong, they're powerful because, but a lot of colleges still, I think, lack um, the programming for like single leg, the rotational power, the single leg um, stability the slowing down because they can go and go, but if you tell them to hold for two seconds, they can't. So that, I think that movement quality needs to be a little bit more of a priority priority in the college environment. And again, like 
there are some colleges and universities that are killing it, like you guys, like at Wake Forest. Like it's amazing what you guys do there, and the, you know the competency of like all the coaches there. But there, I think there's some some schools that are still need to get a little bit more that movement quality, and and I think there's still some schools that have that football mentality where you know most of the time the the director is a, it's a football coach and. Um, I think which, too many times as well. I think strength coaches, which I don't necessarily love that term, are too yeah. comfortable being in the weight room and not necessarily coming out of the weight room because, and that's the most important part. I honestly, I spend my mornings kind of in the weight room for the most part and my afternoons on the court because, yeah. and I think it's really important for your athletes to see you in their environment. You've got to go right. to their environment. You've got to coach in their environment. Uh, I, luckily, I can play tennis. Like if they see me playing tennis, that obviously helps them understand or maybe maybe Chris actually understands a little bit more about tennis he can play yeah. he knows like when the girls team first saw me like playing tennis they were like oh wow like, you can play and I think it's, even yeah. if it's just going to kick a ball around or throw a ball or whatever it's going to be being in their environment taking the warm-up like on the court on the field teaching them movement and I think that's too many times like strength coaches are just literally that like strength it's like we can make someone super strong it's like it's like you said it's that kind of football mentality which has yeah. got its pros but there's definitely its cons there as well and we've got to almost get away from that and understand the movement side of it a, a little bit more the more you can get out of the weight room and have more of an impact like on the field on the court which is where the real kind of changes are made i suppose um yeah. i think the better off the better off you'll be um, and understand the men's of the game, like we just talked about. Like if yeah. you're in the room, then sometimes you you're dealing with all of those different sports. Like you have, I think the college system it's hard too because the way it is, it's like you have a strength coach. A performance coach is not a a thing until now. Like when I was a player, it was just like strength coach. It's not performance. Somebody that's doing the warm up, the movement skills on the field. And I think uh, when you talk about elite. Uh, performance environment you need to have a constant communication between a strength coach a technical coach the athletic department athletic uh, trainers and medical department every week because the strength coach doesn't know what's going on in the field so if you have those players that are just coming off the field from a training session going straight to the gym and you don't know exactly what the focus of the session was you, you can like you cannot be effective when you're coaching because they might be freaking fatigued from a small side game playing small side and neuromuscular load, and then you put more neuromuscular load on, on top of it, then are you getting the adaptations that you need, you know, at the fatigue level? So um, at the same time, if you have an injured player, they're coming out, they're returned, they're um, clear to play. When I The clear to play when I play was like, AT say you're okay, you go back to the field right away. Um, is there a return to play protocol in place? Most of the time, no. As when it's ACL, there there was because it has to go non-contact to a contact. But the other injuries, like if you stay a week without training and you just go and back to training, the loads are like you know, and then you get re-injured, and people don't understand why you don't get re you get re-injured. So. It's that communication, which I learned a lot we, when, when I was at the college system and I was a sports performance coach. And, I, and it was a little weird because I was a performance coach, but I couldn't go to the weight room and do the weight room part because there's a strength coach there. Um, but then there's no communication between any 
anybody. So I started doing those weekly meetings with the ATs and uh, with the technical staff where we're all on the same page. Okay, this player needs more work on this. When you go to the weight room, please prioritize this with them. My players are going to focus a lot of things in the field on this. Make sure you complement or you supplement in the weight room so you're not overworking a system and stuff like that. So I think the college system needs a lot of improvements in that aspect. Um, and you see I, a lot I, of professional teams with, that, that still lack that. So um, I'm not going to blame the college system. It'll eventually but. kind of find its way, find its right. way through. And I think one of the big things is I think that the communication is, is slowly starting to improve between like S&C, ATC, right. that type of stuff, and, and sports coach. Those kind of smaller interdisciplinary teams are, are slowly coming together and, and merging as people realize that it is important. But I think a lot of it comes down to the, the sports coach as well, understanding actually what is, and soccer is probably better at this than I'd say 90% of other sports in terms of tactical periodization. Mm -hmm. I know it's kind of Jose Mourinho was one that kind of brought it to life for a lot of people, but I think... Right if a tennis coach, a softball coach, like whatever it is, if they can understand tactical periodization, and this is something I've worked on with my coaches, uh, I presented to them at the start of the year, okay, this is what our like, weekly like, microcycle looks like if we're going to peak for a Saturday game or play on a Saturday, or if we're playing twice a week, this is what it should look like. And it's trying to break down and have those, break down the barriers and have those conversations and then understand what are the demands. Like you said, you need to know exactly what's happening on the field before they come to your session in the weight room. It's understanding what a certain drill. So if we do a, a two-cross, one-line drill in tennis, which no one will really know what that is, but essentially you hit two balls cross and then the one person switches it down the line, there's a lot of running, a lot of movement. Now we do four by four minutes on, four minutes off for four sets. And now I know what type of like heart rate response that's going to give the players and things like that, how much fatigue that's going to cause. So if that drill is in the session before my weight room session, I know all right, they're probably not going to be too fresh by the time they come to me. Exactly. Compared to it being maybe a more technical, tactical session, then you can maybe do some more power-orientated things. And I think having those open lines of conversation is obviously very important in developing the athletes. So, yeah. All yeah, right, I Viviana. think you're... Oh, I go think I'm going to mention that because I watched your... Um, your presentation at the, at the conference at Wake Forest, and it was just amazing what you're doing there with the, the tennis team and how can you really um, be interacting with the technical staff and using that periodization, which is so important. I think other coaches definitely uh, should listen to, to your presentation or listen to your work because you're, you're doing really good stuff there. So um, keep it up. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, so I know we're getting on a little bit here. I don't want to take too much of your time. So just to finish off, um, I've got two questions for you. Uh, first up, what advice would you give to a young S&C coach trying to get into the profession? And then mm -hmm. secondly, are there any books or articles or anything that you would suggest reading, maybe something you've read recently that really sticks out that you think coaches would, ensure, during this time of where there's not much going on, they should really get into? Yeah, so I think the advice, the biggest advice, I, I would say it, I always say that, it's... Um, um, you always have to have a roadmap and always have to, as a young coach, you really need to know where you're at right now and where you want to be. There's a, there's a road where, you, where you're at and where you want to be, your long-term goal and what your dream, you know. 
um, we understand that our road is bumpy and it's going to be crazy. It's going to be weird sometimes. It's not going to be the way we envision, you know, like I'm talking about coronavirus. Like, have we envisioned that? No. Like, <laughs> that's changing a lot of things in, in our profession, too, because we never dealt with not having an intern to work with, like, to peak and stuff like that. So, um, understanding that road is, is going to be hard and there's going to be adversities, but that's the only way you're going to learn and learn and uh, continue to get to the where you want to be. I think a lot of young coaches, they're uh, sometimes they're pretty, um, they're just worried to get that high uh, professional, like professional right away, the role, you know, the fancy role, the, the sexy role. Uh, and they forget to do a good job in where they are right now. Um, and I think that was really huge for me, especially when I was at Bowling Green as a sports performance coach. Um, how can you be the best of the best there, like, and where you are, instead of just fantasizing, like, just creating that dream and just, you know, oh, I want to be there, I want to be there, I want to be there. How can you... Uh, ask questions, get mentors around you to really help you through out the way. Um, uh, make mistakes because that's part of a part of it. We have a lot of. I was really perfectionist. I was the type of coach that I hated to make mistakes. But then I realized, well, if I don't make mistakes, then I'm not actually learning anything um, practical or whatever. So. Making mistakes is huge, and it's it's part of the process. And uh, being able to do well where you at it's gonna lead to good things and i think people forget that about that if i believe that your universe is going to help you if you're kicking like you're doing everything that you can to be the best you are you asking questions are you you're just thinking oh i'm good enough like i'm i know everything then you're not going to get anywhere because you need to be constantly learning constantly asking questions Constantly looking at videos and saying, this is not right. Where is this coming from? And then getting those pieces of the puzzle together. Um, so that, that way you surround yourself with good people, with good mentors that are going to help you along the way to answer those questions. Um, I have probably five or six mentors that I speak almost every week because I want to ask questions. And for them, it's good too, because they see other, you know, perspectives and stuff like that. So, don't be afraid to make those connections and keep those connections alive. And I think that's huge. Um, and um, things are always going to work out at the end if you do that. Um, and then the books, I think, um, I'm going to say, well, Callister is a big mentor and he's my brother. I'm always going to say his stuff is, has helped me to get to where I'm at in terms of my philosophy and stuff like that. So how to become a supple leopard. Not only that, but his virtual mobility coach app has so much good stuff and his 14 day hip mobility challenge. Like if you want to help your athletes send send them that videos, those videos, you know, that's so helpful. Um, I think back to the basics and the classic book of periodization for team sports from Bompa have yep. really helped me out to, uh, in the weight room. Um, and then the other one is um, sports performance for team sports. Oh, what's the name of it? 
I have it right here in my bookshelf. One sec. It's high performance training for sports. Yeah, yeah. Which yeah. is really good. I always go back to it. Um, really good uh, resource that, you know, I always go back to it. Um, the high intensity interval training book, specifically for soccer, has helped me a lot with Martin Bescheid. Um, I don't know how this, I say his name, last name, but um, that one really helped me. And then Sue Falson is a physical therapist. She was a physical therapist from Exodus. She, she um, wrote this book. It was Bridging the Gap from Rehab to Performance, which was amazing. So it's kind of like literally bridging that gap and understanding the, the rehab and their road to performance, it has to have a road uh, return to play protocol in place and kind of understanding the different variables there. So those are, yeah, I think definitely the biggest ones that kind of guided me through through it. And I still get back to it. Yeah. I made, definitely made a few notes there, a few books that I'm going to have to get onto Amazon and, and make a few orders. <laughs> yes, yes, definitely. Highly encourage those. Yeah, some, some great suggestions. And I think your first point there as well, especially where it's essentially make the big time where you're at. Don't get too far ahead of yourself. Do the best job where you are. Then, if if you want, if you're waiting on that big time offer, so to speak, like it'll it'll come eventually if you do the right things at the right time. Right. So exactly. I think there's some I think there's some huge take home points uh, from this uh, this episode. Ivy, I really appreciate your time, and um, I can't wait to to listen to it back and watch it back myself, especially with some of the movement stuff that we talked about earlier in the in the episode. So thank you very much for your time. It's greatly appreciated. Thank you for inviting me to this, Chris. No worries. See you next time. Bye. See you.